Before we start the episode, just want to say thank you very much to everybody that took part in the Help the Homeless Coronavirus Popular Front raffle. We raised over £4,700. All of that has been sent off to three different charities, Big Issue Foundation, Crisis and Shelter. So thank you very much. The winner of the raffle will be announced on all our platforms by the end of this month, probably next week. But yeah, cheers. This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to researcher and analyst Aaron Zelin. Zelin is, in my opinion, one of the best people researching when it comes to understanding militant jihadism. He's also the guy that runs jihadology.net. If you know Popular Front, you probably know about jihadology. Uh, Today, Aaron is going to be speaking about Tunisian jihad, something we don't actually hear that much of, but something that has had a big influence within Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and even in the wars in uh, Chechnya to some degree and the Balkans. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us to keep it all going at patreon.com slash popularfront. So I was thinking first before we really get into kind of the modern day era with ISIS and what have you, maybe it would be useful if you can go into the history of Tunisia and jihad there specifically because, you know, like I was just saying, it's not really the sort of place that people think of when they think of militant jihadism. Yeah, so you started to first see Tunisians getting involved in the jihadi movement in the 1980s in Afghanistan um, compared to other you know, nationalities though, like Egyptians or Saudis or Yemenis, they weren't like a huge amount of people. You saw first sort of a trickle um, in the early to mid eighties, but most of the Tunisians that ended up getting to Afghanistan actually got there like toward the end of the conflict um, in the late eighties. So they didn't really get to get that same taste that necessarily some of the earlier people did. Um, And because there wasn't a large amount of people, you didn't see like this robust uh, movement at the time in the same way you saw with uh, different groups being created um, within Afghanistan. There was never any specific group created by the Tunisians in Afghanistan in the 80s. Part of that is because there was a lot of infighting between them. Uh, You know, there's this funny quote from Abu Musab al-Suri, who's one of the, you know, key theoreticians of the jihadi movement globally. Um, in its history and he talked about how you know these guys were essentially just you know extremists themselves amongst the jihadi clan and that they would fight with each other and therefore they didn't have that much organization you only really started to see them developing more cohesion and organization in the 1990s after a number of uh, them uh, went to Europe instead of going back to Tunisia because um, in the late 80s, uh, it's important to note also that uh, uh, the then new government led by then President Ben Ali, um, who came into power in the late 80s, did this large scale crackdown on sort of the more mainstream Islamists uh, of Anahta, which is the Tunisian Muslim Brotherhood equivalent, essentially. Um, and as a result, if the jihadis that went to Afghanistan went back, they would have been cracked down upon harshly as well. And therefore, uh, many of them claimed asylum or went over there as migrants. Um, And then you started to see um, Tunisians getting involved in a more serious manner um, and in a more professional manner in many respects um, in relation to uh, the Bosnian conflict. And you saw a number of Tunisians going over to Bosnia to be fighters. Um, But more importantly, which is what sort of became the, uh, you know, MO or tradecraft of the Tunisians in Europe, was that they're highly involved in the recruitment, the facilitation, logistics, document forgery uh, of the broader global movement. So one of the things uh, to think about, you know, you always hear about, you know, Saudis and the Egyptians being key leaders or Libyans and Palestinian Jordanians being sort of key ideologues in the movement historically. But you don't really hear about Tunisians that much. Um, and part of that is because they're essentially these middlemen um, and they're behind the scenes doing a lot of the sort of dirty work, I guess you could say for lack of a better term, um, with these types of activities. Uh, so as a result, nobody that was necessarily 
outside of the movement really knew what was going on with them and the fact that there wasn't too much activity within Tunisia since much it was happening in relation to Europe and Bosnia and then also assisting things with Algeria during the civil war there. Um, uh, you only started to see them becoming more of uh, a, an actual like player when they ended up creating their own organization called the Tunisian Combatant Group um, in June 2000. Um, and this is, of course, after, you know, the Taliban takes over Afghanistan. You started to see a bunch of foreign fighters and jihadis returning to Afghanistan in the late 1990s. Um, so through the connections that were made within Europe, you saw the organization, the TCG, being founded by Abu Ayyad al-Tunisi um, alongside Tariq Marufi. And uh, Abu Ayyad was based in London. Tariq Marufi was based in uh, Brussels. But they also had a key epicenter in Milan as well. And that's where a lot of uh, sort of the middleman activities were going on since the strongest part of network was based in Milan, Italy. Um, so as a result of that, you started to see them instead of directing people towards Bosnia or Algeria and then really small amount to Chechnya. Uh, but back to people going to Afghanistan and they set up a house in Jalalabad for recruits and sent them off to training camps. Um, but one of the most significant things about this movement at the time was the fact that they're the ones who helped uh, plan and execute the assassination of Ahmed Shah Massoud, who is the leader of the Northern Alliance, um, which was the you know group of people in Afghanistan that was fighting the Taliban at the time, but also an ally of the U.S. and Western powers, and likely uh, would have been the key player that the U.S. would have used in the aftermath of uh, the invasion post 9-11. Um, and so this attack was being coordinated with Abu Hafs al-Masri, who was bin Laden's head of uh, military um, activities, um, within Al-Qaeda at the time, and they conducted this attack two days ahead of 9-11, uh, this assassination. So you could see that even though, you know, people don't really think about Tunisians as, you know, these key individuals historically, but they've had a, a lot of key uh, actions that they've been involved with um, that most people don't even realize. And I mean, another one is that after bin Laden originally left Afghanistan in 1992, he only kept one training camp around in Afghanistan, um, and that was actually run by a Tunisian and maintained by a Tunisian um, for the four years until he came back in 1996 after the Sudanese kicked him out, um, uh, as well as you know the Taliban then taking power in parts of Afghanistan. So you had a number of Tunisians involved in activities, or you know they they were doing things that people didn't realize, and then. Post 9-11, you sort of had this new generation of individuals getting involved that didn't really have to do with these historic networks related to Afghanistan or, or what was going on in Europe. Um, of course, those players were still doing things as well. Um, but you sort of had this younger generation that came of age post 9-11 in more of this securitized world, as well as in the context of the Intifada with what was going on in uh, Israel and the Palestinians, but also then the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 and then the occupation there. Um, and as a result, you start to see Tunisians within Tunisia uh, getting involved and being interested in these types of uh, activities and being, you know, sent and facilitated through Syria to get into Iraq to go join up with Zarqawi's network um, and, you know, essentially the Islamic State's predecessor group. Um, but you also then started to see greater connections between Tunisians in Tunisia and, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, the Algerians and sort of the post-Civil War networks in Algeria after the Civil War ended in the late 1990s. So this was the rise of the GSPC, which is what became AQIM. And you started to have Tunisians going to Algeria to train, to either be involved in plotting and attacks within Algeria or to get training to then go to Iraq to join up uh, with Zarqawi um, and the network there. Um, and as a result, uh, this sort of created the basis then for what we would see post 2011. So in about the decade prior to 2011 and the Tunisian revolution, there was a growth in prisoner population within Tunisia as a consequence of these activities. Um, so you had Tunisians trying to go to Algeria or trying to go to Iraq and they would be arrested or they might be arrested within Algeria or they might be arrested in Iraq or in Syria and they would be sent back to Tunisia. Or you had cases where Tunisians had done their sentences um, 
within Europe, and when they're done with their sentences, they're then deported back to Tunisia. So you had sort of this congregation of this first generation of Tunisian jihadis within the prison system, alongside the second generation of Tunisian jihadis in the prison system, between around 2003 to 2011, um, and you started to mix people and gain new experiences, and they started to sort of talk about what they would do whenever they got let out of prison. And this is also where Abu Ayyad continued to assert himself as a leader within this broader um, uh, movement, because in the aftermath of uh, the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, he actually fled to Turkey and was actually based in Turkey for a little while, helping out with some of the attacks that al-Qaeda was planning, you know, the Casablanca and the Madrid train bombing attacks. But he ended up getting arrested and sent back to Tunisia by the Turks in March 2003. So he was only really the early stages of the Madrid one. But if you actually look at the court documents related to the Casablanca attacks, he's directly implicated in uh, planning related to it um, in Morocco. Um, But because of this, this is when he was able to build himself up as a leader amongst the second generation as well. Um, as they start to fill the prison system too as a relation to you know the activities with the Iraq Jihad as well as the GSPC AQIM networks. Um, and starting in around 2006 then, uh, you had more uh, clear planning and ideas of what they were going to do. And part of this is because it was the 50th anniversary of Tunisia's independence from France. Um, so as a result, uh, President Ben Ali at the time uh, let some people out of prison that were part of the Nahda, the Islamist movement that I was talking about previously. Um, they didn't let jihadis out at the time, but, you know, on these anniversaries and things like that, you know, dictators like doing these things to show good gestures along those lines. But because of this, the jihadis in, in the prison system were thinking, you know, what are we going to actually do now if we actually get out? And that's where you started to see planning on what they would actually do. And some of it was based off of their own experiences. Others was based off of sort of lessons learned that Al-Qaeda was implementing or at least putting out on a theoretical level based off of what they saw was the failures of what was happening in Iraq. And then, you know, what I call the original sin of the revolution is that after the revolution happened in uh, mid to late February 2011, there was this general prisoner amnesty, which included people involved in jihadi-related activities. Obviously, I'm totally for letting out political prisoners, but I, I feel like there could have been a better method of maybe retrying the individuals involved in you know, going to Afghanistan, Iraq, or involved in terrorist plots, what have you. Um, but because of that, all these guys got let out into the streets, and there was a couple of thousand of them. Um, and so then they're able to sort of implement their plans and then pretty much go from there uh, after the revolution. Right. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think um, one of the highest number of foreign fighters come from Tunisia in regards to ISIS, right? Yeah, so there was about uh, 3,000 Tunisians that went to join up with ISIS in Syria and then about 1,500 that went to Libya. So you could say the whole pool of people is you know, up to 4,500 people. Of course, there are some people that were both in Libya and Syria at various points, so it's hard to know specifically. Um, But if you look at that whole pool, it's definitely one of uh, the higher groupings uh, of individuals. And part of the reason why uh, they were able to go there was for a variety of factors. One was related to these historical logistics and facilitation networks that Tunisians were involved in. So they're highly connected to all these people going to different places. And the thing is, is one of the things that happened in Iraq was that a lot of Tunisians started to take on more leadership positions too within jihadi groups. So by the time we saw what was going on in 2012 to 14 or so, the head of foreign fighter recruitment for the Islamic State was actually a a Tunisian. This guy, Tariq al-Harzi, he had previously been involved in recruitment uh, for ISIS as well um, in relation to foreign fighters previously going uh, as far back as maybe 2006, 7, 8 time period. So they already had this these personal connections as well. And then for a period in like 2005, 6, uh, the person that was helping move people through Turkey to get into Syria to go into Iraq was actually a Tunisian as well. Um, so you had these various ways of connecting people also. Then, of course, um, you had what happened post-revolution where you had this, uh, you know, opening of society. Um, and what happened is is there was this new group created uh, that Abu Ayyad founded and was the leader of um, called Ansar al-Shri in Tunisia. And they're an al-Qaeda group. Um, uh, but based off of the particular conditions in Tunisia, um, 
and lessons learned from what they perceived as failures related to what Zarqawi was doing with the excessive violence um, in Iraq. They decided on sort of this Dawa-first approach where they would do outreach and proselytization and lectures and social services and you know proto-governance type of activities within Tunisia to reach out to people because they felt um, – uh, Tunisians didn't really wouldn't understand why they would necessarily need to do jihad. And this goes back to sort of the broader history of modern Tunisia. So after its founding in 1956 with founding president Habib Bourguiba, there was a series of um, secular reforms that essentially pushed Islam out of public life and mainly into people's private homes. Um, uh, and therefore, uh, you know, people really didn't have a ton of like serious knowledge about, you know, like, the orthodox understandings of Islam. And therefore, there was this dual process where because of this opening, people were re-exploring things and they're curious about stuff, but also because people didn't necessarily have this buttressed sort of understanding of things, jihadis were able to sort of exploit it by saying like, you know, these are the specific interpretations and blah, blah, blah. And they wouldn't necessarily have the context, especially younger people, that this might be a, a, a more extreme interpretation of how most people sort of uh, look at Islamic scripture. Um, so, so as a result, and then in line with the fact that uh, they had this constituent assembly election to write a new constitution in October 2011, um, which was won uh, by Anahta, this Islamist party that I've been talking about, and based off of their own experience being cracked down upon by the Bin Ali regime uh, previously, they felt that if they did the same thing to these guys in AST, then uh, – you know, in another 15 years, maybe they would be ones ruling the country in the same way that happened to Nahta. So as a result, they came up with sort of this light touch approach, but in the same way that you might uh, over the top crack down upon people and therefore create more grievances and greater radicalization and become more extreme, uh, you know, doing a light touch approach does simply the same thing by providing the space for them to openly proselytize people. And therefore, there is a greater population of potential people to get involved with AST originally than there would have been um, otherwise if, you know, a government treated them in the same way most governments would do for an Al-Qaeda-like group uh, and a, a terrorist organization. Um, and as a result, for about two and a half years, um, uh, they're able to openly proselytize and recruit people to their own organization. And then once the Tunisian government, um, led by Anatta, realized that, you know, this, you know, policy wasn't really working. You know, you saw the attack against the U.S. embassy in Tunis in September 2012. Then there was two assassinations against secular leftist politicians in February and uh, July 2013. Um, and then also AST, because they had become relatively successful with their recruitment, they're starting to take away the Islamic legitimacy of Anahta itself. Um, so as a result, eventually by August 2013, the Tunisian government then designated um, AST as a terrorist organization because of the violence that some of its members were involved with. Um, but it was also fortuitous timing because it was also, you know, in the context of what was going on in Syria, April 2013 was when uh, ISIS went into Syria officially and overtly. Um, of course, you saw Tunisians going to Libya to join up and fight there and join up with the Ansar al-Sharia group in Libya. Um, and you also saw Tunisians earlier joining up with Jabal al-Nusra as well in Syria. Um, uh, but really, the crackdown on AST is what really drove a lot of Tunisians to go abroad instead of staying at home because either, you know, you'd have to stop your activism uh, you'd be arrested and thrown into prison or maybe get involved in sort of this low-level insurgency that was building with AQIM in the border areas with Algeria. But it's never really amounted to too much. It's just been, you know, maybe three to five attacks a year usually. So it's it's not that large scale. So, you know, the most exciting thing was definitely going to Syria. And obviously when you, you know, understand the broader context of what was going on with everybody going to Syria too is obviously the sexiest um, uh, route to go. But the interesting thing is, is that, you know, as I said, AST was an Al-Qaeda group, and then you had this issue with ISIS between Al-Qaeda, but most Tunisians ended up going to ISIS. So ISIS was able to essentially take advantage of the work that Al-Qaeda did in Tunisia and uh, get people to get on their side, essentially. And part of this goes back to the fact that the tensions between Al-Qaeda and ISIS in 2013 still weren't the same way they were post-February 2014 with the official split by Al-Qaeda in the way that Al-Qaeda talked about it. Um, so it wasn't seen as necessarily this weird thing. 
But then you also have to go back to the history of Abu Ayyad um, and when he was in Afghanistan. And he actually knew Zarqawi then when Zarqawi had his training camps in Afghanistan as well. Um, so there was this connection there between you know, Abu Ayyad and Zarqawi and therefore his organization as well. Um, and the thing too is, is before the April 2013 announcement of ISIS officially being in Syria, Abu Ayyad was calling for Tunisians and recruiting people to go to Iraq only to join up with the Islamic State of Iraq, which is what they're calling themselves obviously before they went into Syria and became ISIS. Um, so it was complicated. And then also in the run-up to sort of the caliphate announcement, Abu Ayyad was being relatively neutral about this position because he thought that maybe al-Qaeda could infiltrate ISIS and reform them. Uh, and he actually sent a letter to Ayman al-Zawahri about this. Obviously, it sounds kind of funny thinking about it now. It's like, who's going to actually tell ISIS what to do considering the way that they think? Um, but but essentially, you know, a month and a half after he sent this letter um, in August 2014, he sent another letter to Zawahri as well as other leaders within the al-Qaeda movement, essentially being like, yeah, scratch that. This isn't going to work. They're <laughs> beyond bad type of deal. But by this point, already about 2,400 or so of the 3,000 Tunisians that ended up going to um, Syria had already been there. So his message wouldn't have even resonated by the time that he started actually banging against them. Because the thing to remember, too, in in ISIS propaganda at the time is that anybody that was a leader within the Al-Qaeda movement was essentially being called Jews of Jihad. Um, So even if Abu Ayyad said something to Tunisians to be like, no, you should be with Jabhat al-Nusra instead of ISIS or whatever, um, his voice would have been irrelevant. Right, and then did they um, did the Tunisians have like a prominent role in ISIS as they had before, like you said in Afghanistan and various places? Yeah, so because the Tunisians had um, you know these experiences with AST as well as with ASL in Libya too, in regards to a lot of organization, um, you know, doing social services, being involved in you know lectures and stuff, you saw a lot of Tunisians getting involved in sort of the administrative structure of the Islamic State. Of course, there are fighters as well, but um, you know, you know, the head of the oil and gas facilities essentially in the Deir Zor and Hasaka regions of Syria was being run by the Tunisian Abu Sayyaf, who people might remember that the U.S. Delta Forces actually did a raid against uh, back in 2016, if I remember correctly, um, and, and killed him. Um, uh, but you also had other people in more mid-level administrative positions. Um, and one of the interesting things is that when ISIS first went into Syria, they're trying to sort of rehabilitate their image of all the excesses that they did in Iraq in the prior decade. So they're doing these Dawah events in, you know, Raqqa and Aleppo and elsewhere. And one of the key figures in these events was this Tunisian called Abu Al-Qas al-Tunisi. Um, so he was one of the key faces in this sort of soft power approach that ISIS was originally trying to do in Syria before people realized that, you know, they weren't really changed that much. They just were trying to put a different veneer on things. Um, uh, so that was an important moment for the group, too, in that regard. But then you also had people like Umrayan al-Tunisia, who um, uh, was this uh, woman uh, that was a Tunisian, who was the one who helped found the Al-Khansa Brigade, which is the infamous women-led sort of Hezbollah-like patrol where they did vigilantism and, and moral policing type activities um, amongst the women that were involved in the Islamic State's apparatus. Um, so, uh, you know, you had a m- number of Tunisians involved in some of these activities. And actually, Umrayan, alongside uh, this other Tunisian, actually were the ones who, who helped torture the Jordanian pilot before he was lit on fire um, when he had been captured after his, you know, plane um, uh, didn't work anymore. Um, so, uh, so, you know, there are Tunisians involved for sure at, a, at higher and lower levels. Um, and, and what was interesting, too, is that, you know, when they did the breaking of the borders video, which was, you know, they're trying to signify that they broke Sykes-Picot um, borders. Um, one of the people in the video was actually a Tunisian as well. And the rest were, you know, either Syrians or Iraqis. And then there's Abu uh, Umar al-Shishani as well, too. Um, uh, but it was interesting that, uh, that there was a Tunisian involved in this also and did a speech in one of those videos highlighting his uh, significance also. Right. Um, and there's something I've been interested in was reading about the anti-terror forces in Tunisia. And from what I can gather, like they've been pretty good at stopping ISIS or jihadi attacks in Tunisia in the last couple of years. But I'm wondering, like, do you think that's because they're good or it's just because they all kind of went to Syria? 
Um, I think uh, there's a number of reasons why they've gotten better. So, uh, you know, the the thing to remember is that after 2011, there was a lot of interest in trying to reform the security sector because it had been previously an authoritarian regime and the interior ministry was extremely abusive against most of the population. Um, and therefore, um, for many years, they're still following the same MO that, you know, if they found somebody that was involved in something, then they would do like a dragnet essentially against family members or cousins or acquaintances instead of really doing discriminant uh, intelligence-led sort of policing type of work. Um, and there are still some issues related to that to this day, but you really started to see more serious efforts at reform in the aftermath of the large-scale tax we saw um, in 2015 and 16 with the Bardo National Museum attack, the Seuss Beach attack, the attack on the presidential uh, guard bus uh, in November of 2015, and then also the failed attempt by the Islamic State to take over the town uh, or the city of Bin Gardan, which is close to the Libyan border. So the thing to remember is that um, the main attacks that happened by ISIS, these larger scale ones, um, were actually being planned and based in Libya by uh, the Tunisian network in Libya after the Islamic State had set it itself up there. So they were based in this town of Sabratha, which is just on the other side of the Tunisian-Libyan border. Um, and then after all these actions, uh, as part of sort of the anti-ISIS campaign within Libya too, the U.S. actually did this large-scale airstrike against this camp in Sabratha and killed like allegedly 55 people or so, but that pretty much hurt a lot of the key players and leaders and assets within this Tunisian network that was doing external operations into Tunisia at the time. And then a number of other individuals who then were involved in the attempt to take over of Ben Gardan either were killed or arrested. So that really uh, degraded a lot of the network related to these larger scale attacks versus sort of the more amateurish type of homegrown plotting that we've seen over the years in Tunisia. Um, Obviously, you still had that network in the mountains close to Algeria, too. But again, similar to AQIM, they really haven't been able to do that many attacks, usually three to five attacks a year, mostly. And similar to AQIM, they're mainly against just the security services, whether military or police people, um, and not really against civilians like we saw with the external operations coming from Libya. So because of the anti-ISIS campaign in Libya, that really made it a lot easier on sort of the police within Tunisia in regards to sort of dealing with uh, plots within the country itself on the homegrown basis. But then also through training um, with the U.S., with the EU, um, as well as others, they've just gotten a lot smarter with dealing with this. And one of the things that I've noticed, at least since 2018, is that they've been a lot uh, more discriminant about who they're arresting and how many people they're arresting. And you don't see sort of these large scale numbers of arrests in the same way you had previously, where it seemed like they're just doing arrests for the sake of it to show that they're doing something. Um, and what's interesting in April 2019, or I think it was April 2019, maybe it was 2018, I can't remember off the top of my head now. But um, they essentially said that they're no longer on the defensive anymore against the jihadi movement and sort of trying to put, uh, you know, it came out of Pandora's box back into the box after 2011 um, and that they're more on the offensive now. Um, and therefore, it's created greater room for, uh, you know, more of these reforms within the police uh, as well as interior ministry. I shouldn't say that it's like, you know, 100% success or that, you know, you know, they're acting like police and maybe like Denmark or Switzerland would act or something along those lines. Um, but compared to, you know, the Bin Ali era prior to 2011, um, they're headed in the right direction um, and they're being a lot smarter with it and, and trying to do it more now in conjunction with other actors within the government too, um, whether it's related to the prison system, whether it's related to the judiciary. Um, of course, there's a lot of work still to be done in terms of coordination to make it more in line with the rule of law, as well as just more efficient and smarter, um, as well as being transparent too. Um, but at least for now, it seems like they're headed in the right direction when you're talking about this, not just in the context of jihadism, but just generally a country transitioning from authoritarian rule to a democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier you mentioned about uh, Ansar al-Sharia. I remember reading quite a bit about them like years ago, about five years ago now. 
and you know you're saying they're kind of like Tunisian Al Qaeda types, but didn't they convert to ISIS in the end? No, they didn't. So essentially, uh, as I as as I noted, uh, the group was created after the revolution in around uh, May 2011, and then they're designated by the government in uh, August 2013. Um, and they continue to try and still do stuff for a little while, pretty much through December 2013. But after that, they then, until about the summer 2014, just put out like propaganda statements and the like, but not actually doing activities on the ground. Um, and then the group essentially just became defunct. What essentially happened is that a lot of the networks related to the activism within Tunisia that Anzor al-Sharia created – for those individuals that were leaders in AST that then defected to ISIS, just then repurposed those networks. But the organization as itself never, you know, went for ISIS or anything. It was more some leaders within the group were just like, yeah, I'm ditching AQ type of deal. Um, so you had people like Abu Jafar al-Hattab, um, Kamal Zarouk, um, uh, Bubakar al-Hakim, um, uh, Bilal Shawashi. Um, as well as others, and essentially repurpose some of the networks related to uh, recruitment for activities within Tunisia, and then channel them into you know recruiting people to then become foreign fighters in Libya or Syria and Iraq. Um, so that was more what happened is that there was just a cannibalization of some of the networks, but the organization itself never went for it. And you know, by the summer of 2014, it was essentially defunct, anyways. Got you. Got you. Um, Aaron, tell us about your book. Uh, it's out now, right? What's it all about? Yeah, so some of the conversation we've already having um, is a lot of it is based off of the book. So my book is essentially a history of the Tunisian jihadi movement. You know, um, in the aftermath of the revolution, uh, at the time, you know, jihadis were mainly on password protected forums, putting out their propaganda. And I saw one day in May 2011, there's announcement for this forum for this new group called Ansar al-Shri in Tunisia. I was like, this is interesting. We're only like about four months out of the revolution. And, you know, most people talk about Tunisia compared to most Arab states, relatively speaking, as relatively secular, cosmopolitan. What's, go what's going on here? And that sort of just brought me down this rabbit hole where I was like trying to answer this question, like why was there this essentially explosion or why people mobilizing to jihadi movement in Tunisia? And therefore, you know, I know that most people are more interested in all this stuff related to ISIS and the more recent thing because it's been in the news and like there's so many Tunisians with ISIS and it seems kind of strange. Um, but for me, looking back towards the history prior to 2011 was the most interesting, just so you could see the development of who these people were and the networks and how they transformed over time. And they're able to mutate depending on which group was the hottest at the time, which conflict was the coolest one to go to and how essentially they just switched the networks to whatever that was and but it was still the same people involved in many respects um and that really provided the basis for understanding why there was so such robust you know networks and what we then saw after 2011 um you know without that history it's it's really impossible to get at why they were really successful in what they're doing um uh, and then you know essentially i talk about you know uh, sort of the policy of the government after 2011 and the reasons why they got into sort of this light touch approach and how AST was able to take advantage of it through their particular strategy as well as lessons learned within Al-Qaeda related to what they saw in Iraq. Um, and then also, you know, related to how their strategy ended up ultimately failing because inherently there is violence within the ideology and the Dawa first approach was, uh, you know, uh, just not sustainable. And, and there's a reason why I always say Dawa first is because like jihad second or jihad after that, however you want to describe it. Um, you know, and that got into Hezbollah related violence, which is more of the vigilantism as well as the actual overt attacks like the one on the embassy and the assassinations. Um, but then with, you know, the, closing of the group by the government essentially this influx of tunisians in the spring through end of essentially spring through sp spring 2013 through spring of 2014 this huge outflow of tunisians to isis um and then what that all meant in terms of when people started to return home as well as the development of the network in in libya and then how the tunisians uh, themselves on a governmental level then were able to sort of combat this once you saw those large-scale attacks in 15 and 16 and where they are today now where it's relatively stable it's pretty safe you don't really hear about too many attacks now usually whenever there's one it's really amateurish and small scale and it's usually one or two people involved 
Um, it's very low tech. It's it's uh, all done at home type of deal. Um, there's really no external operations present. Of course, there have been cases where the Tunisian government has arrested people who have been involved in being coached by ISIS abroad. There was just a case last week um, where they arrested an individual who was talking to ISIS members in Libya and Syria about planning a potential attack there um, during last year's election, actually. Um, but uh, overall, uh, comparatively speaking now, things are relatively calm within the country. The thing I think about most in terms of the future trajectory of the movement is uh, two things. One, if you're looking internal to the country of Tunisia, is the prisoner population. So in the same way you have sort of a similar dynamic you had prior to 2011 within the prison system, um, wherein you know part of the prisons are essentially being run by jihadis in the same way you see like gangs do in you know the U.S. prison system or what have you, um, uh, and as a result, people are worried about what that could mean in terms of what could happen when these people are let out. But it also undermines the ability for them to try and do sort of rehabilitation, reintegration for those that are truly trying to you know go back to a regular life and are trying to quit the jihadi movement just because of the social pressures within the prison system itself for people to remain within sort of the milieu essentially. Um, so that's one thing. And then the second thing is related to what, you know, this unfolding that we continue to see in northeast Syria with the Kurds and the SDF uh, controlling the prisoners with ISIS um, in Hasaka, as well as also, you know, the women and children in the IDP camps um, in a whole um, in particular, but also the other smaller ones, too. Um, and what that can mean for the future, whether in terms of ISIS breaking these people out, like we saw with the breaking the walls campaign in Iraq. Uh, you know, seven or eight years ago now, um, um, and how that could flood potential uh, Tunisians back into combat roles or as administrative roles if ISIS starts to potentially take over territory or maybe in sort of a shadow governance type of way since we have seen ISIS um, beginning to levy taxes um, on people in Iraq and Syria again, as well as sometimes setting up checkpoints for extortion and other things. Um, so uh, I worry about that. And, you know, just uh, the other day, there's another prison riot um, within uh, the prisons where these ISIS guys are being held um, in STF-controlled uh, territories in northeast Syria. Um, so there's those two dynamics related to the internal and external of uh, where things are headed now. Yeah, and... I know there's quite a few Tunisians in those prisons that you're talking about. Is the government in Tunisia, are they taking them back or are they just ignoring it like, you know, like we do in the West? <laughs> uh, well, the funny thing is because Tunisia is actually a democracy, unlike all the other state, Arab states, um, they actually are mirroring what's going on in the West where there's a lot of reticence of bringing these guys back. It should be noted, though, over the years, a thousand people have returned to Tunisia. Um, of course, a lot of it has to do with disillusionment. So that's part of the reason why you haven't seen people that have come back getting involved again and sort of plotting. There have been some cases where people have gotten back um, and then tried to do something in, but it's been really small. But the ones that are the most hardcore are still the ones that are in northeast Syria that, you know, are fighting to the last breath in Bahuz, um, uh, and And they don't necessarily... Uh, want to you know go back to their normal lives like some that might have been disillusioned by what they saw uh, in Iraq and Syria when uh, they returned home, but the thing is, there's also a constituency within Tunisia because it is a, uh, a democracy and and Tunisia civil society is actually very um, robust and active. Uh, many of them don't want these people to return, um, essentially saying that you know these aren't truly Tunisians that they shouldn't be allowed to come back for the heinous crimes that they've committed. So. There's a lot of barriers politically for bringing them back as well, just because it's it's not a popular thing to do. So <laughs> the politicians have to think in the same way, you know, um, we see with, uh, you know, these uh, uh, decisions that have gone on in a various uh, Western states as well. Um, but because of that, it's creating this lingering, festering issue in northeast Syria, um, just like you see with the Western citizens, um, or I guess those that maybe have been stripped citizenship too, um, there as well. And what that could mean in the future too, if they're ever 
broken out of prison as some people, you know, including myself, fear in the more, um, you know, whenever that could potentially happen and what that means in terms of the insurgencies in Iraq and Syria, but also what that can mean in terms of potentially for external operations back into Tunisia, because these guys are probably pissed off. Um, So obviously it's hard to predict specifically what could happen in the future, but just continuing to allow nothing to happen on the front with these foreigners in general and Tunisians specifically in this case to just remain there is is not you know a sustainable solution to any of this yeah I keep thinking every time there's a prison riot it's like it's just it's going to be eventually one is going to kind of break the camel's back I think and they are all going to get out do you know what I mean but I don't know hopefully not um Aaron I just want to talk a little bit about uh jihadology briefly because I've been on your site I listened to the podcast back in the day loads very very helpful um, maybe you can explain, you know, what is jihad- jihadology and what, what do you do there? Yeah, sure. First, I'll note on the prison break thing, too. The mm. thing to remember is that everybody always talked about when they broke out Taji and Abu Ghraib in uh, the Breaking the Walls campaign. But there are a number of prior attempts to that as well. It just wasn't successful. We only saw the successful ones later. So, so even though we're not seeing successes now, it shouldn't necessarily be a good sign, in my opinion. But... In terms of uh, my website, Geodology, so it's actually almost the 10-year anniversary of it. Later this month will be the 10-year anniversary when I created the website after I finished my master's. And essentially, I created um, in the aftermath when I finished my master's because my master's thesis was on sort of the evolution and um, uh, Islamist ideology that led to Al-Qaeda sort of from the fall of the caliphate in 1924 through the beginning of Al-Qaeda at the end of the Afghan Jihad in the late 1980s. Um, and so I was, you know, looking through trying to find primary sources related to things to help me with this research at the time. And, you know, it's not like in college they necessarily taught you how to find jihadi content online, especially back in like 2008 to 2010 time period where things, even though it was like seven, eight years, nine years after 9-11, a lot of the academic issues related to it still hadn't caught up to the realities. Now I think it's a lot better in terms of teaching students related to this that are interested in how to um, – find it and process it and do it in a serious and rigorous manner and and also doing it ethically and things along those lines. Um, uh, but at the time, there wasn't really that same kind of setup in a lot of parts of academia. So I kind of just was figuring it out myself over time. But I figured, you know, if, uh, look, uh, I was having issues with this, maybe other graduate students were. And that was the original impetus, essentially, for the website, was to create it for other graduate students so that they would have access to the documents. Of course, I never honestly thought it would become what it became. um, And that, you know, so many people use it beyond just graduate students, of course. Um, You know, and uh, since then, you know, I've Beyond just primary sources, people have done guest posts and analysis on it. Um, I've done different features over time, you know, like the podcast or like my articles of the week thing about key articles that people have written about the movement or, you know, doing specific series like when bin Laden died, I collated a bunch of responses within the movement about what was going on or the initial um, responses from the jihadi movement related to the various uprisings in the Arab world in 2011 and 12. Um, and then more recently, creating pages related to responses of, uh, you know, jihadis in Syria, as well as the SDF and the Assad regime related to coronavirus, just from a comparative perspective, just because it's something interesting and different in terms of comparing how these different actors operate within the same country, but different administrations because different parts of Syria are being controlled by different actors. Um, so, you know, there's a ton of stuff. And I mean, now there's more than 15,000 different posts on the website uh it's nearing maybe one um terabyte worth of data on on the website of content now i think i think uh you know so uh there's a ton there and the thing is is like you know it's always funny people act like i look at all this stuff myself i'm like mainly just saving and uploading it so other people can look at it because there's no way i could look at all this stuff uh, during the day because there's so much content and and there's so much content on there that still can be exploited so I always urge people to try and find stuff on there that hasn't uh, you know people haven't done research on and looked at yet I know that you know it's popular to look at like the English language magazines and that's easy but there's so much more out there that could be used to better understand these movements that nobody's even looked at yet which is uh, mind-numbing just because there is so much primary source content out there and the way that we could better understand these movements and better understand their histories. I mean, that's part of the reason why 
I was, ab- I was happy that I was able to do my book about uh, the history of the Tunisian jihadi movement because, um, you know, even though it became a larger issue later when I first started looking into it, most people were like, whatever, Tunisians, jihadis, who cares? You know, there's not that many of them type of deal. Um, but the thing is, you might find something that, you know, uh, might not be relevant today, but could easily be important later on. Um, uh, or just for a general knowledge base, just to provide greater depth of understanding of a certain issue, um, uh, or maybe disproving or arguing against the way somebody might have looked at an issue previously because they might have missed some documentation or, or maybe misinterpreted something or there's new evidence that suggests something otherwise. So, um, you know, I just hope people are able to, I know people are using it, but uh, in, in other ways beyond just sort of uh, necessarily the ways a lot of people already use it now. Yeah, I've, I've been on it before and just like, like three hours have just gone, you know what I mean? Just like gone into a rabbit hole, man. I think it's so good. Um, didn't you get censored before? That was something I always wanted to ask. Didn't like the, I, I remember vaguely a story where the British government tried to censor it or something, no? Yeah, so they were like harassing me for a good like two to three years, the home office as well as the Metropolitan Police about my website, essentially saying that, you know, like my website was supporting jihadis, which obviously it isn't. It's a research mechanism. And it's funny because the same people are using my website themselves, a bunch of hypocrites. Um, uh, But anyways, I mean... Obviously, the environment's different with ISIS, um, but also because there are all the crackdowns against a lot of this content on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter. Of course, it's not perfect, but it did eliminate a lot of stuff. Um, And therefore, um, my website became one of the few stable locations where this content was up. But even that being said, um, there have been studies that have come out since by some people showing sort of the links that jihadis are using on Telegram. And this is before my website became password protected um, uh, about uh, 13 months ago, um, where it showed that, you know, yes, there were links to stuff from my website, but it was like less than 1% of the time. So it's kind of ridiculous. Like if you're within your own milieu and subculture and ecosystem online, they're not going to care about my website. They're going to want to do it with own, their own social movement. Um, so as a result, uh, I thought it was a bit overblown and ridiculous. Uh, but because I kept on getting pressure, um, you know, and I, one of the things I said is, look, I do this website in my free time. I'm not making any money off of this type of deal. Like, I'm just doing it for just the passion of doing it and better understanding this stuff and also helping everybody else out in the field and hopefully uh, better educating people. Um, look, I don't have the money to like change things. And I certainly don't have, you know, like the software engineering type of background to change the website. So it's sophisticated. And eventually after the global internet forum uh, for countering terrorism, which is a consortium between Facebook, Google, uh, Twitter, and Microsoft, um, the UK government started pressuring them through them to get me to do stuff to add this password protection and, you know, through the tech companies with their money and then with Tech Against Terrorism, which is uh, an NGO related to the UN who had the sort of software engineering backgrounds and skills and um, data science type of project, we're able over sort of the year prior to fully implementing the password protection, which came live April 2019, come up with a plan to make it a way where I was still happy with the website um, and it still felt like it was my website and that I still had full control and that it wouldn't make, you know, like the aesthetic shitty or anything and that everything was still pretty much the same. You just needed to, um, you know, log on or what have you, um, as long as you have like a legitimate email address and, you know, that's anybody that's, you know, a student, journalist, government, diplomat, humanitarian worker, uh, you know, anybody that would use it for a legitimate purpose, essentially, um, could get on. And there hasn't been any issues. It's just a matter of if there's not a domain that has been whitelisted yet, then somebody will email me and I'll add it to the whitelist. Um, <clears throat> so relatively speaking, it's been pretty successful um, since then. Uh, obviously, I'm still kind of bitter against the UK government, as I'm sure you could probably tell maybe. <laughs> as you should be. It's outrageous, to be honest. Yeah, especially since it's not even like my own government. So it's kind of ridiculous because nobody in the US government has ever really cared. I mean, they've always understood it. Um, and I think it also shows 
um, how little the UK government sort of understands this stuff. It's like they literally let these guys operate in their own country for 15 years unmolested. You know, the whole Londonistan uh, scene and uh, moniker that they had. And it's like you're pointing fingers at me. And the funny thing is that there's all these like websites that have been created in the last year by Al Qaeda specifically that are still up and, 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 and nobody's done anything about it. But little old me, I guess I'm an easy target because I'm just one individual. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, people are still using it for research and there's, you know, so I'm happy about that. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, we'll see where things go. But uh, 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 it's, it's, you know, still, still running. Uh, it's, it's not centered or anything. It's still up. Just have a password protection now. So. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. It's really dumb because, you know, I, I had friends going to uh, mosques in London that were like, you know, we've had to speak to the police because a certain guy at our mosque is becoming very extreme and we're worried about it. You know, you're talking about the Muslim community contacting the police themselves, being like, hey, you need to check this guy out. We're worried about him. And the police do absolutely nothing about it. But then they go after a website. Like, it's, it's kind of... I don't know, the the, police, the way the police work like this, the anti-terror police specifically, is uh, very strange. Um, anyway, mate, let's let's um, t- let's plug all your stuff, man. What, what's your book called? Where can people get it? And uh, where can people follow you online? Yeah, so my book is Your Sons Are at Your Service, Tunisia's Missionaries of Jihad. You can pretty much get it anywhere online where you'd find a book, but, you know, main one obviously is probably Amazon. Um, but you could also get it on the Columbia University press website and if you get it there and you use the discount code cup30 you can get 30 percent off the price um so obviously that might be of interest to students um or those that don't necessarily want to pay as much money um though the price of the kindle version is cheaper than the um paperback version um and then in terms of uh you know twitter um at a zelen um for those interested and then of course if you do want to follow my website it's geodology.net um So, yeah, see you all online, I guess. (laughs) Thank you very much, mate. That was really, really interesting. Yeah, no worries at all. That was Aaron Zelin speaking about Tunisian jihad and briefly about jihadology, where the stupid British government tried to censor it or did censor it. Um, Definitely check out jihadology.net if you're at all interested in learning about jihadism in a very unfiltered, uh, non-sanitized way you know it's really good jihadology is, is I think very very valuable um, to the kind of conflict research community um, like I said at the start thank you all very much for participating in the help the homeless charity raffle we raised over four and a half grand I've sent it all off to the charities and I'm currently spending my days writing all the names on little raffle tickets which I will pull out of a hat live, probably on the Instagram, um, just just to do it. Just I just think live is probably a better idea, so no one can chat shit. I guess I guess you like, they could either way, but whatever. Yeah, we're gonna do that um, definitely by the end of May, probably next week. It's just like there's over a thousand um, entries, so I've got to write. I think it is anyway. So I got anyway. I got to write all them out, but uh, yeah. Um, if you like what we're doing, as usual, please do consider supporting us on the Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash popular front. You get bonus episodes, narrated articles, access to the Discord, all sorts of stuff there. Um, and if you don't like Patreon, you can support us at popularfront.co slash support. You can send us, you know, like donations, whatever, via Bitcoin, normal money, whatever you want popularfront.co slash support remember we basically survive on all of that this is all grassroots uh no corporate bullshit so thank you very much if you are supporting uh also you could buy our merchandise at popularfront.shop um yeah you can look cool while supporting uh this episode was sponsored by the defensepost.com defense with an s go there for regular updates on the world in conflict also sponsored by our mates at Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products. Go see them at 3875 Southwest, Bond Avenue 97239. Uh, tell them Popular Front send you. Hopefully soon they will be back open um, because we're hoping that, you know, all over the place, these lockdown restrictions kind of chill out a little bit. Uh, but who knows? 
Uh, the episode is also sponsored by Black Triangle, an independent company manufacturing their own low-key self-defense tools. Thank you very much. They donated some of these tools to the uh, popular front Help the Homeless raffle. Uh, check them out on Instagram at Black Triangle Group or their website, blacktriangle.com, but it's spelled B-L-K, right? So B-L-K triangle.com. Tell them popular front sent you. Um, what they're doing is cool, all independent, like I said. The episode is also sponsored by our mates at Fengtings. Uh, Fengtings, basically, they're doing custom Baofeng radios and advice on how to basically use them and tune into whatever. You know, I got one that's very interesting. I think something I'm fascinated with, like ham radio, shortwave, all of that. Um, go to Instagram.com/feng.tings, spelled T-I-N-G-Z. Um, in the UK, like paintings is like basically saying someone's attractive, so it's kind of a joke on that. Fengtings on Instagram, direct message uh, Callum there, and you know, he's doing like really cool stuff, basically building up the Baofengs with all these really good aerials, bigger batteries, and also doing custom paint jobs. Like, he's got all these um, camouflage graffiti things. I don't know, it's interesting. A lot of people said, What's the thing with the Baofeng? It's just interesting, like a lot of people that are fascinated with Popular Front generally are interested in what we're interested in, you know, and it's like a nerdy bit of fun really, you kind of tune into different shortwave radio stuff, you know, you can track military um, planes and all sorts of stuff with them, it's really cool, um, yeah, instagram.com slash feng.tings. Um, do subscribe to us on YouTube, we'll have another doc out by the end of the month. Go to youtube.com slash popularfront, subscribe, hit the bell, it's the only way you'll be notified because again, we're, whatever the YouTube equivalent of a shadow ban is, we are that, like, whole channel completely uh, demonetized, doesn't really come up in searches that are relevant, so... Yeah, that's what happens, independent, blah, blah. Uh, Twitter, follow me at Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N, or at Popular Front C-O. Uh, the Instagram is uh, instagram.com slash popular.front. You'll have to type the whole thing in because we're shadow banned there too. Happy days. Um, yeah, and for the website, www.popularfront.co. Uh, go there a lot of people contact me through there I'm really sorry I don't have time anymore to reply to everything it's not me being rude it's just popular front has become so big now that on my own it's very hard to deal with you know what I mean and we don't make enough money to hire people yet so it is what it is you know it's, it's good it's a good problem to have don't get me wrong but just so you know I'm not being rude um, uh, yeah and thank you to the following Patreons uh, thank you very much because you are keeping this afloat they are Adam Berg Snyder Amy Rupert, Andrew Hurley, Anthony Kobarek, Axel Iverson, Azad, Bill Wilson, Brian McLaughlin, Trey Nance, Chad Walker, Charlie, Chris, Christina Rivetti, Christopher Martin, DR, Dan Dunham, Daniel Shearer, <laughs> Degenerate Zero Alpha, alright, Diana Gorvenek, Dong Wayne, Emiliano, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, Fragile Feeling, Frank Austin, James from the Discord, Joanne Stocker, Josh, Jungle King Virapam, Lawrence Abrahams, Liam Williams, uh, Luis Nicastro, uh, do let me know if I've said that wrong, uh, Ma Moritz, Moritz Zumbwal, Ari, Olin, Olin Thorne, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did and Defiance, Cubal Rubicon, Ryan Sandercock, Skatoon Music, Sebastian, Sarushe Hawazi, Stephen Davila, Tony Bin, and Vida Provost. Thank you very much. And some people contacted me, you know, a lot of people have had to unsubscribe from the Patreon because corona has affected the economy and is affecting people's jobs and so many people are messaging me saying i'm so sorry please honestly i understand it mate do not worry you do not have to say sorry it's not like i get it you're not saying we don't like popular front mate money situations trust me had them bad my whole life you do not have to say sorry please do not say sorry i hate that it's there is no sorry like honestly i get it trust me recession is coming we all know it's understandable it is what it is um but yeah thank you very much to the patreons really appreciate that and if you're not a patreon you can get a lot of cool stuff like every month there's a minimum of two bonus episodes um 
I don't know how many there are now, like nearly 60. And the bonus episodes are different. It's not just like Popular Front. It's kind of like Popular Front 2 in a way. Like we almost get a little bit more niche with them. There's a lot of historical stuff there. Um, it's kind of different. I, I enjoy doing them. It's good fun. Uh, and also, you know, access to the uh, Popular Front Discord watchlist gang. Like anyone that's in there will tell you what a good community we have there. It's like big community of weirdos, misfits, and we all get on and it's not bullshit. And no one's scared to like talk out and be blah, blah, you know. No frills, no elitism, as we say, but no clicks either. Like, none of that. Don't like that. You know, I've heard some people say, oh, like, Popular Front's like the cool kids of, like, the new conflict, blah, blah. We're not the cool kids, mate. Like, there is no cool kids. That's, that's, that's tired. Like, forget that. It's just people that get along with each other and openly talk to each other and are not, and are not full of shit. You know what I mean? It's good. So, anyway, thank you all very much for the support. Um, Patreon.com slash Popular Front or popularfront.co slash support music in this episode the intro is by home and the outro is by sam black alias son of old go to samblackpf.com to listen to his music <laughs>